Welcome to church. Uh, welcome <laughs> to Super Sunday. Today's a special day, okay? It's Super Bowl Sunday, and I can honestly say with 100% clarity um, and honesty that I've been waiting for this day my whole life. Uh, you all know that I have an unhealthy attachment to a certain football establishment on the west side of Missouri. Um, and we are a church that provides our, you know, prides ourselves on honesty. And I get asked often, why do you like the Chiefs? Um, are you from Kansas City? And the answer is no, I am not from Kansas City. I'm from Illinois. All my family's Bears fans. But when I was a kid growing up in Illinois, I really liked the colors of the Chiefs. And then I wish I had a better answer. And then when I fell in love with football, I just kind of went crazy. And so there really is not a time in my life where I, I don't remember, you know, cheering for any other team. Uh, and, you know, this afternoon, I'll be watching the game with my family. They have stood by my side after heartbreak after heartbreak for 39 years. And, um, uh, and it's just going to be an intimate gathering of just my family, not because I want it to be small, but because I know that they will not judge me for my reactions to the referees and to the other players. <laughs> my wife is so embarrassed by me, there's only a few select people in our lives that are allowed to see me like that in my worst. And so to all you 49er fans out there, good luck. It should be a good game, but do me a favor, win or lose, don't text me. That's not a joke. <laughs> don't text me. Now, it has been said, and I think I agree with this, that there are three topics a pastor can preach on, and their church will grow. People will get excited, and they'll bring their friends, and the church will grow, that people want to hear about it, okay? Those three topics are sex, okay? No surprise there. Uh, this would be a great topic to attract a bunch of people to our church, sex on Sundays. Um, and then the, the, the second thing would be end times. Okay, end times, we have this fascination with the end times, uh, Armageddon, what the Bible says. So the three topics are sex, end times, and the third is, will there be sex at the end times? Okay, <laughs> you preach on any of those three things and your church is going to grow in size, okay? Now this morning, I'm not going to be teaching on any of those, but through the rest of February, we will be. Okay. Next week, we start a brand new series called You, Me, We, and it's our marriage series on sex, intimacy, love, dating, marriage, and it's just going to be absolutely incredible. We got all kinds of fun stuff planned, and so we want to encourage you to invite friends and family, perhaps some other couples that you know um, that would be encouraged to try this out for three weeks and apply some of the biblical principles that God has for us in regards to love, sex, dating, and marriage. And we really believe that no matter if you are married or single or dating, we really believe God's going to use this series to, to, to grow us in our relationships with each other and grow in our relationships with God. So we um, really want you to come. And also, it'll grow our church. Uh, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, because today is such a, a momentous occasion in my life, uh, I want to do something that I haven't done before at Prodigal Church. I'd like to share a bit more of my story and how my story intersected with God's story. Uh, and so in church lingo, this is my testimony, okay? This is my testimony. Everybody has a testimony. Testimony is just testifying to what God has done and is doing. And so I know lots of people growing up in the church and they're like, well, I don't really have a testimony, you know, I... I accepted Christ when I was four and kind of been in church my whole life. That's not a testimony. Uh, testimony is what God has done and God is doing. I met Jesus for the first time in 1995, sitting in a metal chair in a youth ministry. 
Uh, I mentioned the metal chair because the only churches I'd been to before, prior to that were like old wooden pews, and maybe they had padding there. Uh, and so I sat in this cold metal chair. I still remember the cold like on my booty, okay? Like I remember 1995, and there was a band there, and they were singing classic worship songs like, Lord, I lift your name on high, and, uh, you know, his banner. And this was before uh, PowerPoint. And so to, to have everyone learn the lyrics of the song, they had the lyrics just like that. Just like that. This is bringing some of you guys back right now. Uh, and, and so they would, uh, they would have someone here, and then often, uh, you know, uh, uh, they would switch songs, but then they would have the chords of the guitar solos on top of it. I remember singing and watching and listening to this song called His Banner. His banner over me, his banner over you, his banner over us is love, love, love. And the pastor began to share about this. His banner. God's banner over us is love. And it was, I began to encounter that, encounter that through the people of God. It was this, yeah, beautiful, unique experience. And I was sitting there listening to this pastor with a patch of gray hair on the side of his head share the good news of Jesus, that Jesus loved me, that his banner over me is love. When we closed in prayer that Sunday morning, I gave my life to Jesus. And there was this pretty 20-something that was a volunteer in the youth ministry. And uh, she came up and kind of started talking to me. She could tell that I was a, a visitor and so when we closed in prayer, like I saw people kind of holding hands and stuff. And so then I grabbed her hand, but I didn't know church etiquette. And so I grabbed her hand and we interdigitized phalanges, okay, just like this. <laughs> That's a commitment right there. And so here I am, this 15-year-old kid with like hair parted down the, the middle, shaved on the sides, and, uh, and I'm interdigitizing hands with this 20-something. And I was like, this church thing is good. Uh, I feel the spirit, and um, I started following Jesus that day. Um, and as a teenager, I was really involved in the youth ministry. And in that youth group, I met some of the greatest friends in my life. And it was in those teenage years that we, I realized that Christians could have fun. Like, I didn't think that was true. Like, I thought Christians were boring and um, kind of uptight. And, uh, and then I realized that, man, we could have a great time. Church can be fun. Uh, and they didn't have to be all super spiritual. They were just honest, real, fun people. Being involved in youth ministry kept me from making a lot of bad decisions as a teenager. Uh, the youth group really helped me. And I think it's a big reason why I became a youth pastor for a, a, the first 11 years post high school. Uh, because I had such a great, great positive experience. Now, when I was a teenager, I said youth ministry kept me out of making bad decisions. We still made bad decisions, but they were like Christian bad decisions, okay? Uh, they were significantly better than they could have been. We used to sneak out of our homes, teepee houses, or jump uh, the 10 meter at Clovis West, their swimming pool. And don't do this. And we used to do that almost every weekend. There was this group of girls in our youth group, and they were called the Clovis High Girls, okay? They went to, I don't know if you know, but Clovis High. And we called them Clubs High Girls, and some of my friends, they were our age, some of my friends were dating some of them, and we were all just good friends. And they love God, they like to have fun, and so my guys and the girls, you know, we would, uh, you know, always hang out and just, you know, have tons of fun. And uh, um, 
they decided that they wanted to TPR houses. This was not something that you would do to my group of friends, okay? You don't mess with the SBC. Yeah, that's what we called ourselves. The SBC, and everybody knew it. What did SBC stand for? I'm not going to tell you. It was Satan Bashers Club. And uh, <laughs> we were Satan Bashers Club, we were SBC, and we were famous. So nobody wanted to mess with us. You don't TP our houses. So these Clovis High girls find out where we live, and they TP all of our houses. So you know, we're going to come back with a vengeance. But we don't know where any of them live, okay? This is like before the internet really took off. And so uh, uh, we don't know where any of them live, so we go up to one of them after church, and we, we kind of give them an ultimatum. We go, listen, we know you guys TP our houses, okay? But here's the deal. You know we're going to get you back, but we don't know where you live. So if you give us the addresses to every one of your friends, we will spare your house, okay? We made her Judas. And <laughs> so we throw 30 pieces of silver towards her. And then uh, next day, she goes, let me think about it. She comes back the next day, and she goes, I'll do it. And gives us a piece of paper, slips it in an envelope towards us, and we've got all the list of all the addresses of all our friends. And we're like, man, this is awesome. And so we bought over 500 rolls of toilet paper. We spent the night keeping every house. One of the girls' families was out of town, so we got on the roof and started laying out square by square on each ceiling tile. We bought thousands of plastic forks, dug them all in the, the lawn, and then broke them all. And I mean, we just absolutely got them so good. Total carnage. You don't mess with SBC. Now, the next Sunday, we expected them to bow down before the SBC. They did not. They didn't say a word. They just handed us a videotape. So a VHS tape. Some of you guys have to Google what that is. And after church, we rushed to our friend TJ's house. We put the VHS in. And it's the girls driving up to each house that we teepeed that next morning and explained to us that we did not TP any of their friends' houses. We TP'd a bunch of Clovis High guys that we didn't know that you're not supposed to mess with, and these girls wanted a TP. <laughs> they framed us. That's what we were thinking too. You want to know what we did when we finally did find out where they lived, but... And I'm really not going to tell you. This was my high school years. Living the good life with the SBC, hanging out and loving people who love God and have, loved having a good time. And it was in that same youth group where I met a girl who would become my wife. She was 14, I was 15. She wore an orange shirt with Calvin Klein denim overalls on. You know what I'm talking about. And so she was in the back of youth group and uh, I was smitten. And uh, more on our story in the next several weeks during our You, Me, We series. But my faith was simple in these days. I was saved. And if you didn't believe the same things that I did, then you were not saved. I was right. Everyone else was wrong. I was in. Everybody else was out. And I really loved Jesus and had a, a zeal for him. I remember getting into contentious debates and arguments with people who were non-Christians or people a part of a different kind of church or a person a part of a different kind of religion altogether. Getting in these debates and arguments and yelling that. I remember walking away going, man, I, I really punked them. You could win a debate and lose a soul like that. You could win a debate and lose a friend. And I did. 
I did. Being right gave me the privilege of being better than other people. I would have never said it like that back then, but it was true in my mind. Being right gave me the privilege of being better than everyone else. So this being right, this, this keeping, this kept people who were wrong at a distance and it kept them at arm's length. I'm close enough to them that I can tell them about Jesus, but far enough away from them that to never actually try and hear or see their own heart. And being right and being certain has a lot of perks. I went to college. I majored in Christian ministry and biblical studies. I worked at three of the largest churches in uh, Fresno Clovis. And I want to reiterate, my heart was 100% in the right place. I did love Jesus. I was doing my best to follow him. But it was impossible for me to see that my zealousness for Jesus was actually hindering what God wanted me to learn, to grow in what he wanted to do in and through me. I had this way of viewing the world that I was right in so many ways, and at the same time, I was so very wrong in so many ways. But I had surrounded myself with people and books that continued to reinforce this mindset. I was trapped in a world of Christian religiosity, and I didn't even know it. Surrounded by a world that constantly reinforced how right I was and how wrong everyone else was. And living in that space was pushing me farther and farther from the very people God had called me to learn from and very people God had called me to love. There was no way out. But God will always be bigger than our worldviews. God will always be bigger than the boxes and the theological boxes that we try and keep him in. I don't think there was a moment of clarity, but rather moments of grace that interrupted my religious life that I was living There was not a singular moment that moved me towards acknowledging the lens I was wearing as I looked at the Bible and as I looked at the people of the world. But I realized those lens were shadier than I thought they were. It was kind of like the fable told by Irish philosopher Peter Rollins. Um, when it's, it's, a, it's a story about a small town filled with believers who always sought to act in obedience to God. When faced with difficult situations, the leader of the community would be found in deep prayer or searching the scriptures for wisdom and guidance. Late one evening, in the middle of winter, a young man from the neighboring city arrived at the, at the town's gates and, of the little church, and the caretaker immediately brought him in and saw that he was hungry and cold, so provided him a warm meal and new clothing and blankets. And after he had eaten, the young man explained how he had fled the city as a political dissident. Turns out that the government that, that he was a part of was a little bit corrupt, and so he had spoke out against that government, and the church also in that, and he fled. And the caretaker brought the young man to his home, allowed him to stay until a plan had worked out about what he was supposed to do, where he was supposed to do, what was going to happen next. So when the priest in, was informed about all that had happened, he called the leaders of the town together to work out what ought to be done. And after two days of discussion— it was agreed that they needed to hand the man over to the authorities to face up to the crimes he had committed. But the caretaker protested, saying, this man has committed no crimes. He merely criticized the injustices of his country and of the church. And the priest said, well, what you say might be true, but his presence puts the whole town in danger. What if the authorities work out and find out where he's at? Uh, we would be in danger, that we protected him. 
But the caretaker refused to hand him over to the priest, saying, he's my guest, he's under my roof, and no harm will come to him. And if you take him by force, I will publicly identify with him and suffer the same consequences as he does. And the caretaker was well-loved by the people, and the priest had no intention of letting him experience harm. So the leaders went again, and they searched the scriptures to find out what needed to take place. And after a whole night of pouring over the scriptures, the leaders came back to the caretaker, and they said, we've read the sacred book all night long, seeking guidance to find out what God will want us to do. And it tells us that we must respect our earthly authorities, and we must hand him over. But the caretaker also knew the sacred words of scripture, and he told them that the Bible asked that we care for those who suffer and who are persecuted. So then, then and there, the leaders leave, and they start to fervently pray. They beseeched God not to have a still, small voice, but the God who speaks with this booming voice as he did to Moses, as he did to Abraham. God, make it clear. Make it clear what we are supposed to do as a community of faith. Sure enough, the sky began to darken, and God descended from heaven, saying, the priests and the elders speak the truth. You've got to let them go. You've got to let them go. This man must be handed to the authorities. But the caretaker, a man of deep faith, looked up to God and replied, If you want me to remain faithful to you, my God, then I can do nothing but refuse your advice. For I do not need the scriptures or your words to tell me what I ought to do. You have already demanded that I look after this man. You have written that I must protect him at all costs. Your words of love have been spelled out by the lines of this man's face. Your text is found in the texture of his flesh. And so, my God, I defy you precisely to remain faithful to you. And with this, God withdrew with a smile, knowing that the matter had finally been settled. Over the past 10 years, there have been these moments of seeing the, the words of Jesus on the flesh and the faces of people across from me. And this new thing that God was doing in me, this supernatural draw of the Holy Spirit, wasn't something that happened overnight. It was something that happened over years. And I've come to believe what Billy Graham said. He said this, it's God's job to judge, it's the Spirit's job to convict, and it's our job to love. Amen, amen, amen. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Singular. What's the greatest commandment? One. Give us the top. And he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. And they're like, yes, yes, we agree. We know it. It's all about God. It's, everything's about God, our relationship with God, our righteousness, our purity, our relationship. That's all where it's at. And Jesus says, but the second one is like it. He, I'm not going to let you get away with just that. To love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't ask for the greatest and the second greatest. They asked for the greatest. Jesus said, no, no. They're together. Jesus refuses to let it be just about you and God. It's always about other people. For so many years, my faith was a brick wall, and it was strong, and it was sturdy. And I had all the right answers to all the questions. And I constructed this wall with brick and mortar. And people would come to my office, and they would ask me questions, deep questions. I'm a pastor. I've, I've got all the right answers. And they would, they would tell me the questions, and then I would give, him the, I'd give them the answers, the stock answers that I'd been taught. But eventually, as they left, I said to myself, their questions are better than my answers. And my 
my theology, my view of God, this brick wall wasn't working the way it always supposed to. And I started to, you know, try and make everything fit, try and make everything work the way it always was, try and make it as simple as it once was for me. Because there's a great comfort in being right and knowing that you're right in everything. And my theology became like a suitcase. And I said, no, 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 it all fits. So I had a, I jammed it all in there. I had a shoelace hanging out, a belt loop, a pant legs hanging out, sweatshirts out. And I'm like, no, no, I promise it fits. I'm sitting on it. I'm trying to zip it. And finally just, it just blew up. Because if you question one little thing of, and you move one little brick, the whole wall is at risk, right? You defend that wall. This is why I had that zealousness that when, when I'm talking to someone of a different faith or I'm talking about someone who doesn't believe the same things I do, this is why I went to war. Because if one little thing is moving, the whole wall can come falling down. I don't view my faith any longer like a brick wall. I view it more like my son Dex views a trampoline. In the winter, my, my brother came into town from Tucson, Arizona, and Dex runs out on the trampoline, and he goes, Uncle Pete, Uncle Pete, come on, let's wrestle, let's jump, let's bounce. And Uncle Pete runs up there and tackles Dex, and they have a ball. I believe that following Jesus, the faith of the scriptures, the faith that Jesus passes on to us and leads us towards, is much more like a trampoline. They're flexible, and they propel you in your experience. And you know what? You don't have to defend a trampoline. You invite others to experience what you experience. And there's joy. And, and there's laughter. And there's this encounter with God where sometimes it feels like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to land on something sturdy. I don't know if my foundations are the same. And God is smiling all the time, knowing that the matter has finally been settled. I'm inviting you to experience what others are experiencing. Invitation to journey. Invitation to laughter. Invitation to life. So I'll invite Noe and the band to come up. We'll close with this song. Next Sunday, uh, I want to encourage you guys to consider inviting someone to Prodigal. This relationship series is going to be incredible. And next week, when someone walks into our church for the first time, it's not going to be a metal chair. It's not going to be, uh, you know, a projector with transparencies. It's not going to be a pastor speaking with a gray patch of hair right here on the side of his head. But the same banner that overwhelmed me in 1995 in that church gymnasium just might overwhelm you, just might overwhelm your friends. And they may experience that the banner over me and his banner over you and his banner over us is love, love, love. You see, God is very big, and he uses all kinds of things to draw us closer to him, all kinds of places to draw us closer to him, even this one. Will you be open to that? So God, we thank you that your banner over us is love.
We thank you, God, for your goodness and for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you, God, that uh, you're not done moving yet. So, God, may we encounter, may we encounter your overwhelming, engulfing love, banner of love over us. Draw us closer to you, Father. And God, I do pray that even now, as we are going to be starting this series on marriage and relationships next week, God, that you would soften the soil of our hearts so that we might hear what you have for us and that it might be watered and grow and we might experience new life in our relationships. So we pray that in advance, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare that God's banner over us is love?